We've been getting good feedback with the Q&R uh, every week. I have to be honest, I thought, is this going to work? Uh, is this something we want to keep doing? And every week I hear, yeah, it's good. So uh, as I, we'll see, uh, we'll, no promises that today will be good. But um, if you uh, would like to ask a question, we really want to prioritize the questions that have to do with understanding and applying the text. So uh, if you have a question about the text or the sermon as it's preached, you can go to slido.com and enter the code GFC Don Mills there. Let's pray as we begin to look at God's word. Uh, Lord, we are grateful for uh, your word. It, this word highlights the danger we're in. There's a lot at stake as we open your word. And so we ask now for the help of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we are not capable of receiving your word by ourselves. We need his help. So Lord, would you help us through your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I've been here now over a month. I feel like I'm getting to know you. Hopefully you feel like you're getting to know me a little bit. I feel like it's time we can go a level deeper in our relationship today. And uh, I want to share with you a couple of uh, really advanced theological uh, approaches to scripture. These are uh, basically two very different ways of reading scripture. And I, I hope you're going to see this make sense with the passage today. Uh, so here is one way of reading scripture. Now, this is advanced, as I said, but uh, really what you could summarize this as is uh, with the acronym HCTBSS. This is one advanced way of reading scripture. Um, now, let me unpack this. This is really complicated. So here's what that means. Uh, this is a way of scripture that basically is, how could they be so stupid? Um, and we read the Bible this way so often, don't we? Uh, we read the Bible, and uh, the children of Israel, God rescues them from slavery. He uh, takes them into the wilderness. They've just seen God deliver them. Uh, they've just seen God wipe the, one of the most powerful nations, uh, of the, the military power of the, uh, one of the most powerful nations. God just sidelines them. And uh, the people are like, we miss the garlic. Like, the garlic in Egypt was amazing. The leeks, like there's no leeks out here. And uh, you and I read that passage and we're like, how could they be so stupid? How could they look for slavery? They go, you know what? We were slaves. It was much better because the garlic was just so amazing. And you and I read that and go, man, like what is wrong with these people? Or I don't know if you've ever read the gospels and the disciples are going along and, uh, it's amazing how often they say the wrong thing, and we're just like, man, what is wrong with these people that they could be like that? Now, has anybody ever read the Bible that way? I know I have. I, I do this regularly, uh, and this is a problem. You know, for instance, one of the things that I think this passage refers to is uh, the rebellion of Israel. Uh, Twelve spies were sent out to spy the land, and ten come back, and they say, there's really tall people there. We can't go there. And two of them come back and basically say, tall people, really? Like, we're scared of tall people. Now, God is bigger than tall people. But 10 of the people are like, they're really tall. And two of the people are like, do you understand who God is? And we look at that and say, how could those people be so stupid? So that's one way you're reading the Bible, I want to suggest to you that's a way that a lot of us read the Bible. A lot of the time, we read the Bible and we're just like, 
oh man, I'm so glad I'm not like those people. Like they are really, really stupid. Here's the other way of reading the Bible. And again, I promise for the complexity of this, but uh, W-I-T-S-T is the other way of reading the Bible. And I think the passage before us today is basically saying we need to switch from reading the Bible this way to reading the Bible according to this theological technique. And here's, I think, what this passage is telling us to do. To read the Bible, we, we're in the same danger. We're in the same danger. Instead of reading the Bible like, how could they be so stupid? We're supposed to read it and say, man, if they messed up like that, we're capable of messing up like that. If they're capable of sinning in that way, we must be capable of sinning that way. You know, for instance, um, you read the story of David and Goliath, and you're a lot, the first way of reading it is, how could the people be so stupid to fear the giant? Like, we're like David. We're like David going to kill the giant. Praise God, we need to be like David. The other way, this way of reading scripture is, we're in the same danger. We're in the same danger of, like, we need salvation. We need a savior. And just like they needed a savior to come along and deliver them, we're in the same danger. We need a savior to come and deliver us. Two very different ways of reading scripture. And today I want to show you, uh, because what he does here is gives us two case studies of this way of reading the Bible. I want to look at it with you and then just draw it home so that we understand that what this passage is saying is, look at these two examples from the past where we're tempted to go, they were so stupid. And he's going to reframe it and say, let's look at these two examples and actually realize we're in exactly the same danger that they were back then. So here's the two examples uh, in this passage. It was a long passage. You might be wondering, why are we looking at such a long passage? I would argue that this is really about one concept, but two examples. So here are the two examples he gives us. And the one has to do with Moses. And so in chapter 3, uh, by the way, the theme has been so far, Christ is better than angels. Christ is better than angels. That's been chapter one and part of chapter two. And now he is beginning to unpack that Christ is better than, and he gives us two examples. Moses is the first one. Moses is an amazing figure in the uh, history of redemption. He led Israel from slavery to right to the edge of the promised land. He built the tabernacle. He was given the law. God said, hey, Moses, come up here. I'm going to give you the law. Everybody else stay down because you're going to die if you come up here. But Moses was able to come up. And God spoke to Moses face to face. And so Moses was this incredible figure. Uh, in fact, in the Gospels, when uh, Jesus has the, we call it the transfiguration, when Jesus' glory is revealed, Moses is one of the figures that is there talking with Jesus. He, is, he stands head and shoulders above almost everyone else in the Bible as being one of the key people in the history of God saving his people. How did Israel do under Moses' leadership? Well, Hebrews says, let's look at this case study. How did they do? Not very well. And in this passage today, uh, what you're going to see is he quotes Psalm 95 at length. And Psalm 95 is basically about the goodness of God, the greatness of God, and how 
stupid God's people can be. And he begins to quote uh, Psalm 95. He's been, the psalmist has been saying uh, how great God is, but in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 11, he says this. This is what Psalm 95 says about the people under Moses' leadership. Today, if you hear his voice, don't be like them in the wilderness. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What rebellion is he talking about? 10, 12 spies go in. 10 of them are like tall people. We can't do it. They're too tall. Don't be like that, he says. On the day of testing in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, and therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What they did at the beginning, uh, we can't take it. They continue to do all throughout the 40 years. Now what does the author do here? He's quoting Psalm 95 to say, hey, today we are in the same danger. Don't make the same mistake they did. And he goes on. We don't have to guess what he's doing with this because in verses 12 to 13, he says this. Here's the application to us today. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What he's saying here is we're in danger of making the same mistake they did back then. Don't do it. And what he says here is exhort each other, uh, one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. When you see somebody sin, there's two ways of responding. When you see somebody sin back then or today, a lot of times we're tempted to think, how could they have done that? And what Hebrews is saying is, that's exactly the wrong question. When we see somebody sin and, and begin to struggle in their walk with God, we don't go, how could they? What we should say is, man, I'm in the same danger. I need to take care because this could happen to me. We're in the same danger that they were. Actually, we're not. The, the writer to Hebrews says we're actually in greater danger. Verses one to five, he argues that actually, you know, they serve Moses. Who are we serving today? Are we, we're serving Jesus. They failed under Moses' leadership. Now, Moses was great, but he was only a man. In verses one to five, what the writer says is actually, if they failed under Moses' leadership and the stakes were severe, what about us who are following a better leader, Jesus? The stakes are even higher for us. Verses one to five, in verse three, he says, uh, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus is better than Moses, so it's actually much more serious for us. If the consequences were severe for them, how much more severe when we are following Jesus and could fall away? And then he gives two examples or two proofs for why Jesus was better. He basically says in verse four that Moses presided over a house, but Jesus actually not only built that house, but built all of creation. Verse five says that Moses was a servant in the house, but Jesus is God's son over the house, meaning that Moses had a role within the temple but God has a role within the entire universe. Moses was only a servant, but Jesus Christ is God's son. Friends, I want you to hear, uh, I need to hear this today. The stakes are so high for us. 
The people of Israel failed because they failed to hear Moses. They, follow, they failed to follow his leadership. We have someone even better than Jesus who has spoken to us clearly in his word. The people perished because they didn't follow Moses' leadership. How much more dangerous for us who are not just following Moses' leadership, but actually have Jesus to answer to. This is not a dispassionate theological discussion. I think what the writer is doing, he's writing to these Christians who were in danger of drifting. And what he's doing here is he's saying, it could happen to us. He's grabbing them and saying, please listen. Please recognize what's at stake. You know, when I preach, one of the things that I'm really aware of is actually what we're doing here is very dangerous right now. As much as, again, I want to say this, I hope that every week you hold me accountable to preach the word of God. I hope the minute I lift my finger off this page and begin to just share my own opinions or thoughts, you kind of turn the, like picture you have a hearing aid, you don't have a hearing aid, most of you, but when I begin to lift my finger off here and I just give you permission to turn the dial down, begin thinking about the football game later today or what you're going to eat for lunch or whatever. That's fine. When it's me giving my opinion, stop listening. But when I or anybody gets up here and says, this is what Holy Scripture says, and we're opening the text and applying it, there's so much at stake. Our response to what God has revealed, because Jesus is real, because this is God's holy word speaking to us, Right now, we are actually adding either judgment to us if we fail to obey it, or we're actually um, following the Lord. We're discovering life in his word. What is happening here is actually dangerous. As God's word is preached, there's an added accountability for what we're about to hear. And what the writer is saying is, please don't miss what's at stake. What's at stake? Well, for Israel, at the end of chapter 3, he says, This is what was at stake for them. They were hardened, verse 13, by the deceitfulness of sin. And then he says in verse 16, what are the consequences for those who heard and yet rebelled? He says, uh, they provoke God, verse 17. And because they sinned, their bodies fell in the wilderness. What he says here is the consequences were catastrophic for them. For 40 years, they could have entered into uh, deliverance, but instead for 40 years, they wandered. Friends, what are the consequences for us today? If Jesus is greater than Moses, how much higher are the stakes if we rebel against him? The stakes could not be higher for us. We're in danger. All of us are. I am. You are too. Don't make the same mistake. Okay, so he's, by the way, Hebrews is, um, some people think it was a sermon. Uh, Some people think that it was a written sermon. It actually isn't like a lot of epistles. A lot of them are structured very differently. They have an introduction and so on. Like every good preacher, uh, he's just given an example. But because he's so urgent here, he says, I don't want to just give you the example of Moses. I actually want to give you a second example because I really want to drive the point home here. And so here's the second example. He says, look, example A, exhibit A is Moses. Don't make the same mistake. And now he says, I want to give you a second example. And the second example is Joshua. Verse in uh, chapter four, 
he begins to say, uh, begins to develop this theme of Joshua's leadership. After Moses was gone, Moses actually failed because of his own sin. And a new leader appeared. His name was Joshua. And verse 2 of chapter 4 says that Joshua came along and actually preached good news to them. Verse 2 says, for good news came to us just as to them. Now that's an interesting term, good news. You probably, some of you would recognize that as being gospel. Gospel means good news. What was the gospel that was proclaimed to them then? The gospel was that the land is there for the taking. All you have to do is enter. That's all you have to do. God has given it to you, just enter. Joshua and Caleb told the people in Numbers 14.9, don't fear the people of the land. They're just bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And Hebrew says that's the gospel. Friends, the good news of the gospel back then as it is today is God, God has done it all. All you have to do is come to him and receive. You don't contribute anything. You just receive what he's given you. And that's exactly what they failed to do. God's like, I'm giving it to you. You just have to receive it. And the people were like, no, I'm not going to do that. And that's why verse 2 says, uh, the message they heard, the gospel they heard, did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Now here's the danger again. When the gospel is proclaimed, it might do no good because we might not receive it with faith. And so the writer goes on and says, you know, that's what happened. It's not enough to hear the good news. We've got to respond with faith to the good news. As a result of this, they missed out on God's promises. And again, I mentioned that he quoted Psalm 95 already. He keeps quoting Psalm 95 three more times in chapter 4, in verses 3, 5, and 7. As I swore my wrath in Joshua's day, they shall not enter my rest. Again, for emphasis, they shall not enter my rest. And then the urgency, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What he's saying is, exhibit A, Moses. How could they be so stupid? No, we're in the same danger. Exhibit B, Joshua. They didn't listen to him when the gospel was proclaimed. Instead of saying, how could they be so stupid? We say, we're in the same danger. Don't make the same mistake. And it's interesting the thing that he says, uh, the theme that he develops is rest. Is anybody tired today? <laughs> Thank you, I see that hand. Like, two, two of you are tired today, that's good. The rest of you are really good. There's coffee at the back um, for the two of us. We'll go back later. You know what? The amazing news of the gospel is God grants us rest. Rest is a multi-layered thing in scripture. I love this. Uh, the message of the gospel is, you know, basically the, the kind of, in this passage, it actually develops rest in a number of ways. It quotes Genesis 2 and says right at the beginning of creation, God rested. In chapter 4, it says, uh, actually, I love this. It says uh, God rested in verse 4 from all his works. And so it mentions like right from the beginning of creation, even God rested. God established this pattern of regular rest that God 
looked at creation and said, I don't need to do anything. Creation is perfect. Today I can take the day off and just admire what I've made. I don't need to keep working. I can rest. That blows my mind that God even rests. God's work in creating this world was perfect and he could just look at it and take the seventh day and go, wow, that's amazing. But it goes on and says, you know, there's another kind of rest. There's a command to observe the Sabbath. God has commanded us in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant people, he commanded them to rest. It's a big deal. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Is it binding on us today? That's a big debate we're not going to get into right now. You can bring it up in the q and I'll give you my opinion then, if you would like. I will say it's a pattern for us today. Friends, if you are here today, I want you to, you are here today, so that's all of you. Okay. <laughs> if you are still awake here today, God wants you to rest. God is not interested in you just simply wearing yourself out. God wants you to rest. He wants you to enjoy his creation. He wants you to stop working and just enjoy him one day a week. But there's a third kind of rest. There's the rest of entering the promised land. That's the kind of rest that he talks about here, that entering the promised land was, in verse 8, part of part of the rest, the ultimate rest that is coming, the rest of entering the promised land is we don't have to fight anymore. We can actually settle down here. We can, we're dwelling in security here. We're no longer in the wilderness. We're no longer picking up our tent and moving all the time. But then the author says, but that was in verse eight, he says, just a glimpse of the ultimate rest that awaits every believer. One day we will have the ultimate rest of knowing we don't have to accomplish anything more. We just get to enter into what God has prepared for us. Right now, actually, there's kind of a present component to it as well as a future component of it. Here's the present component of it. Right now, you can enjoy the rest that Jesus promised. Right now, you can know that Jesus Christ has defeated sin and death. Right now, you can have the rest of knowing that there's no more work that has to be done for you to be made right with God. All the demands of justice have been met in Jesus, and you can rest right now in the finished work of Jesus Christ. As Charles Spurgeon says, Christ, by suffering in, his, in our stead, has answered all the demands of justice, and therefore the believer's heart can be fully at rest. Right now, uh, sometimes I experience it in church. I don't know if you ever come in and you're heavily burdened. And as we're singing together, as we hear the word of God preached, as we gather, do you ever just have this experience of rest in the middle of that? I do. In the middle of all the burdens, you just have a glimpse of heaven. Man, God is good. I can rest. My soul finds rest in God. And here in Hebrews, that is only a glimpse of the rest that is coming. There's a, a future rest that we get to enjoy in the future where that rest will be perfect. And in chapter 4, here's what uh, the writer is saying. That was the rest promised in Joshua's day, and they missed it. You have an even better rest promised to you. Please don't miss it. In chapter 4, he says, uh, do not, you know, you're in danger of missing that rest 
Verse one, he says, therefore, while the promise of entering this rest still stands, this offer won't be here forever. Let us fear, lest any of you fail to reach it. Don't miss this rest. The stakes are high if they missed the rest of the promised land. How much more in danger are we when we've been offered an even better rest than they have? I hope you see what he's doing here. He's taking these Old Testament examples and saying, don't look at them and say, ah, so stupid. Look at them and say, we're in an even greater danger today. Don't blow your chance. The stakes are much, much higher for you. We could make the same mistake. One of the things I know I'm uh, guilty of sometimes when I'm preaching is kind of like giving the big picture like this, like this is the big idea of, of scripture. Um, but then I kind of leave it floating in the air. Sometimes I need a bit of help in bringing it down to like, okay, so what do we do about this? I feel like so far what I've done is I said, like this is the abstract concept that he's trying to communicate. Basically, don't make the same mistake. Don't blow your chances. The stakes are even higher. What I want to do for the rest of the sermon is actually look at what this passage says. How can we actually avoid making this mistake? I noticed as I was working through this passage, there's four things that uh, the writer actually says that will help us to avoid making this mistake. And today, as I just go over these four things, it might be that one of them stands out especially to you. So as we're going through these four things, I would just encourage you uh, to think about what is God calling me to do? Which of these four especially applies to me? The writer doesn't just give one answer. It might be that there's actually uh, multiple answers to this problem. There's no single solution, no like silver bullet that's going to work every time. And that's why he gives us four things that are going to help us to avoid this danger. Here's the first one, all the way back in the first verse of chapter three. How can we avoid making the same mistake? Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, here's the first thing we can do to avoid making this mistake. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Consider Jesus. How do we avoid making the same mistake that they did? You could translate consider Jesus, rivet your attention on Jesus. Think about him. Notice him. Meditate on him. Focus all of your attention on him. One of the reasons we gather every week as a church is to consider Jesus. One of the reasons we're here every week is to go, what a great savior. When we sang the songs this morning about what Jesus Christ has done for us, the abundance of his mercy, his saving acts in coming to this world and saving us, we're riveting our attention on Jesus. One of the best things you can do in your life, if you want to avoid the danger of, of making the same mistake, is rivet your attention on Jesus. Friends, let's purpose as a church that we're going to be a church that's all about just riveting our attention on Jesus, can we? In our daily lives, when we wake up in the morning, can we just agree that one of the first things we need to do is rivet our attention on Jesus, to consider him. Um, I know a lot of us take a lot of things for granted. Um, somebody was, one day I heard saying, like when we wake up in the morning, usually we just think about like stress and bad things and everything. 
And they were saying, like, one of the best things you can do is actually when your feet hit the ground, even to go like, wow, like, just even take in the sensation of, I'm alive, right? And then when you walk, like, look at that. Like, I can actually walk. Like, if we could take, I think we really need to be awake to all the blessings God has given us. You know the greatest blessing God has given us is Jesus. Rivet your attention on him. Don't take him for granted. Like, just look at him in all of his glory. Robert Murray McShane said, believers should live in daily consideration of the greatness and glory of Christ. If you're here today if, and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, maybe you're here uh, exploring Christianity. You're not sure what this is all about. For some reason, you're here. Maybe somebody dragged you here and uh, you're here under protest. If you're here today and you're a mature believer who's been coming for years, the same thing for all of us. We, the same thing applies to all of us. Look at Jesus Marvel at him. He is what we're here to do. That's why we're here to gather. We're joining the angels. We're joining all of creation that one day will look at Jesus and marvel. But number two, uh, consider Jesus. Uh, just make it like obsess over him. Rivet your attention on him. But in verse 12, here's another step that we can take. Be on guard for signs of an unbelieving heart. Verse 12 says, take care. There's the action there. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And then in verse 13, he says, we're all in danger of being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So rivet your attention on Jesus. But the second thing he says is, you've got to be on guard. Against what? About Against an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The progression uh, is gradual. This doesn't happen immediately. It's step by step. You take one step away from Christ and then another step away from Christ. Or like water that you boil and then cools, there can be a gradual cooling of our affections for Christ. And what he says here is, be careful, be careful. Are you losing wonder at your salvation? Can you come to church and sing some of the songs and not be wowed? Uh, do you come to the communion table and just like, oh yeah, not, we did this two weeks ago, whatever. As you hear, as you read scripture, do you ever sense uh, just a coldness in your heart? And he says, take care. Actually regard that as a very spiritually dangerous thing. You're in danger of making the same mistakes as they did back then, but the stakes are even higher for you. And so take care, just be on guard. When you begin to sift, uh, sense a coldness in your heart, take action. Hit the emergency button, like it is a big deal, take care. I wonder today, as you look at your heart, if you do sense a coldness in your heart towards Christ, it might be that you were once passionate about Christ, and today you're, you just feel a coldness, a deadness. And what he says here is, take that seriously. Don't just ignore that. Take action. Uh, get help. Ask Christ for help. He will help you, but take care. Number three. And man, I need this. Verse 13. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. We 
need each other. We are not called to pursue Christ alone. We need each other. Friends, I need you to look at me and tell me Christ is good. I need you to remind me of the goodness of Christ. And I need to remind you of the goodness of Christ. We need to come together and gather and pray and worship. We're all in danger of wandering. Uh, you ever see the, somebody going through the mall? I've never done this, uh, but they've got a little toddler and the toddler's on a leash. And uh, I always feel sorry for the toddler. But then I remember when I was a kid, uh, I would always get lost. Like, I was on, I went on school trips. I was a, like, fairly well-behaved kid at school, but I actually got banned from school trips because I always got lost. They were like, you're not going on any more school trips anymore. Looking back, I kind of think my mother should have gotten one of those leashes, and actually, every time I wandered away, like, yanked me back. You know what we're called to do with each other? We're called to tether ourselves to each other. And when one of us begins to wander away, don't just watch it happen. Pull on that leash. Exhort them. Say, brother, sister, I care about you. I care about you enough to, I'm not, I'm going to exhort you. I want you to follow Christ. We've got to do that. We need each other to do this. Raymond Brown says this, believers are expected to exercise a daily cheering ministry to other Christians. Every member of the body of Christ should grasp opportunities every day to speak an uplifting word and do the supportive thing for his Christian partners in Christ. Do you know why you're here today? You're not just here to hear a message or to uh, sing with other believers. One of the most important things we do is before and after the service. In a few minutes, we're going to close. And I love this church because you're not going to leave. You're going to, many of you are going to stand here and talk. Do you realize what you're doing in those moments? You're serving. You're exhorting each other. You're saying, how was your week? You're looking at others in the eye. You're looking for ways to encourage each other. Let's exhort each other, number three. And then the final thing he says in verse 11 is this. Strive to enter the rest. Chapter four, verse 11. Strive to enter the rest. That's kind of a funny thing, isn't it? Work hard to enter the rest. Like, there's a work now. To get to the rest, there's a work. What is that work? The work is to stay close to Christ. The work is to hear. Right now, you're doing the hard work, hopefully, of hearing the word of God. If you're doing this right, you're getting exhausted as I'm preaching because you're working hard at actually applying the word that you're receiving from the text and saying, how can I apply it to my heart? And Hebrews is saying, keep doing that. Keep working hard. I love what follows in here. Chapter 4 he says these amazing words about the word of God, how it's uh, quick and powerful, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intents of a heart. No creature is hidden from his sight. What he's saying here is, you will be found out. God's word will find you. Depending on your response to God's word, God's word will reveal what, how you respond to his word. There will be no place to hide. No creature can hide from God because he is the one before whom our lives are laid bare. And so how important is it that therefore we work hard at receiving his word? Today, we live in a very different time than back then. We are technological, we're advanced, we're certainly more comfortable than they were back then. 
even the original recipients of uh, this book, we, we're in a much different spot than they are. We're not tempted to go back to Judaism. Probably we're not as discouraged as they are. But today the writer of Hebrews says, we're in the same danger that the people under Moses were, the people under Joshua were, the people even that this letter was written to. Don't make the same mistake. Don't miss out on Jesus because the stakes are even higher for you and for me. I read this week of a 31-year-old mother of two, and she'd been attending services for years where the gospel was preached. And here's what she said one day when she realized that she'd missed out. She said, I've just realized I've been playing at religion all my life. I'm active at church. I'm on committees. I've heard about the crucifixion so much since I was a child that I've been numb to it. And I realize today that I don't have a relationship with Christ. Friends, if that's you today, if you've been attending church for years, but it's just been, you've been busy, you take it for granted, you've never actually put your faith in Christ. He is ready to receive you today. He's ready to invite you into something so much better. If you're here today and you're just like, I feel so dead and discouraged. I just feel like, yeah, I've given my life to Christ, but it's been a drudgery today. Jesus is inviting you to come back and marvel at him, to recapture that first love, to not miss the wonder of what he's done for you. Gaze at the cross, see the beauty of Jesus, and don't miss out. And so, Lord, this is our prayer. Israel only got a sample of what we get to enjoy. Uh, they were given just a glimpse of your glory. But Lord, we've seen the full glory of Jesus in all of his glory. So I pray, help us not to miss out. I pray you would help us to take these four steps uh, and adore and magnify Jesus in our hearts. The stakes are high, so Lord, may we hear your word. May we treasure Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.